Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, fellow time travellers. Great to have you with me, as always, for the journey through time and space that never ends. To help support this podcast and to get access to all the extras, all the exclusive content and the competitions and the questions and answers, go to patreon.com and sign up. It's easy. Uh, you look for me by name, you spend a bit of cash, monthly or annually, and if and when you do, it'll be lovely to see you there and have you as part of the family. Right now, it's time to strap into the time machine and set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Much of Europe is made up not of nation-states, but vast landed estates ruled over by monarchs and nobles. When Charles II, King of Spain, dies, dynastic dynamite is ignited. Daggers are drawn for a brutal war that explodes across the European continent, wrecking havoc and spilling blood for the next 12 years. Hi Neil, last week we sat beneath a famous English apple tree and watched one of the true geniuses of science at work. Where are we this week? Good morning, Paul. Well, we're leaving Isaac Newton behind uh, and along with the outbreak of bubonic plague that forced him into isolation and we're heading smack bang into another deadly curse, which is war, the greatest curse of them all. It's 1704 and we're travelling to Blenheim in Germany to witness a battle which many regard as one of the most significant in history. This week we're in the midst of the War of the Spanish Succession. It's the time of a very significant conflict in the story of Europe. When we started the love letter to the world, we made the point that Europe's not in the picture for the longest time. You know, the love letter to the world starts in the old world of Mesopotamia and Babylon and Persia and Greece and so on. And it's relatively late in the day that Europe and events in Europe start to be the flavour, you know, that start to dictate in any way. And certainly by the time you get to the War of the Spanish Succession, which kicks off at the end of the 17th century, So, we're talking about that period and the events surrounding it. In the way of the love letter to the world, 
my attention's often drawn into the small first of all, and then and then the, the spider's web connections that that take it out into the into the bigger picture. And I suppose this one starts, or this one does start, on the sixth of February, sixteen ninety nine. This is the moment that kind of catches my attention and makes me look backwards and forwards. And on the 6th of February 1699, a little boy, just six years old, called Joseph Ferdinand Leopold, of the house of Wittelsbach, he died. He died in his bed at home in Brussels. And Brussels, at that time in history, was still known as the Spanish Netherlands. So he dies fitting, convulsing in his bed, little six-year-old boy. Uh, his father was Maximilian II Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria. It's one of those one of those titles that prevailed in in that part of Northern Europe. So his father was Maximilian II Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria, and he was also Governor General of those Spanish Netherlands. The little boy's death was unexpected, which is to say it's not as though he was born poorly and unhealthy and where people were preoccupied with whether or not he would thrive and, and make it into adulthood. As far as anyone could tell, Joseph Ferdinand was a healthy little boy, but he took ill and it was of unexpected severity. Rumours abound, hard to get a clear picture of what and how and why, but certainly some people said he died of smallpox. But the description of the way he went doesn't necessarily fit with smallpox, because as I mentioned, he was fitting severely in his bed and he was vomiting ceaselessly, wringing himself hollow, wringing himself out with vomiting. So there was also there was some speculation that he might have been poisoned, i.e. a wrongful death. So if, if he was poisoned, if that was the cause, who done it? And fingers were pointed in various directions, and some, and, and the reasons for this will become clear, some blamed the Holy Roman Emperor, no less, Leopold I of Austria, who had everything to gain from the death. And so, you know, we talk, we talk about these names, you know, you cast about, you know, Joseph Ferdinand Leopold of the House of Wittelsbach and, you know, his father, Maximilian II Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria and, and so on. And, and, and we, I felt it when we were talking just not so very long ago about Henry VIII and, and Catherine of Aragon and all those stillborn babies and all those babies that died in early, early infancy. And because of the people to whom it's happening, these titled figures, you overlook the fact that at heart it's the death of a baby or the death of a child. And any child's death is an immortal pain, the worst of the worst. So the bigger picture is that Europe, the continent of Europe at that time, it was a continent not of nation states, but of great landed estates. That was the reality. We think of Europe in terms of France and Germany and, you know, and, and the Netherlands and Italy and, and so on. Nation states with those national identities. Well, for the longest time, 
the continent was was broken up into territories that were the landed estates, the land holdings of monarchs and nobles, lesser rulers. And it's extraordinary when you think about it, because the fates of millions of people, tens of millions of people, depended upon uh, deals that were struck between a handful of, of very, very powerful and wealthy families. Uh, you know, the uh, lines were drawn across fields, over hills, di- dictating, telling people where they lived and who they were answerable to. And those people, those millions of people, it was done without so much as a buy your leave. They had no vote. They had no say in it. I mean, from one year to the next, they wouldn't necessarily know who owned them. And they did own them. And it's extraordinary. But it was just big estates with this king or that queen, this emperor or, or that aristocrat in charge of their destinies. And it was all constantly in flux. It's like a mirage. It had been shimmering in front of your eyes. It had continually been adjusted, changing shape, a line here, you know, that chunk there used to be part of this estate, now it's that estate, depending on a marriage and all of the rest of it. It's extraordinary. And that they're still there. These, these people, their descendants are still there. And it's, it's out of sight, but you know, they're still influential and involved the aftershocks or the, or the echoes of their voices are still there in what happens in Europe and in the in the wider world. So, so Europe wasn't broken up by national lines. It was shaped by notional lines that were the purview of, of a handful of people. By that time, you know, we're talking now about the end of the 17th century. Well, you know, in the century before, Elizabeth I of England had cultivated a sense of a nation-state in England, although it has to be conceded that that was, had a lot to do with geography. Britain was an island, and the English Channel made that sense of separateness a little bit easier to sell, and you know, a little bit unmistakable, really. France and Spain were on the way to nationhood. Uh, they were evolving in that direction, but it was still... England included, it was still about the ambitions of this king or that king. And it, it got in the way. It, it, it kept on sort of compromising and holding back that advancement towards what we would consider to be the more civilised way of organising things, which is to say nation-states. So the little boy died in 1699. Well, half a lifetime before little Joseph Ferdinand slipped away, on the 9th of June 1660 to be precise the young king of France at that time Louis XIV married, was married off to the Spanish Infanta Maria Teresa who was the eldest daughter of King Philip IV of Spain so another of these uh, you know, dynastic, dynastic get-togethers and obviously in advance of the, the signatures being put to the paper there was a lot of deal-making when these families got together and contemplated marriage, it wasn't out of any kind of romance. It was it was to secure deals. It was business. And the deal that everyone agreed to at the time was that um, neither Maria Teresa nor any of her children, children that she would give birth to, n- none of them, and herself included, would inherit the Spanish throne. That was just 
off the table. So they signed up to this and the marriage went ahead and Philip of Spain, whose daughter Maria Teresa was, he was supposed to uh, compensate her husband, which is Louis XIV of France, with a huge dowry. You know, you're never going to get the Spanish throne, but here's, <laughs> here's something else as a sweetener. But he never did that deal. He welched on that deal. And within a year, Philip was, was mooching about the place, you know, thinking, I, I agreed to the fact that my wife would not bring with her the Spanish throne, but I was supposed to get something else and I never got anything. You know, the, the Christmas stocking remains empty. And he was eyeing up, making no bones about the fact that he was interested in the Spanish Netherlands. And by way of gaining leverage, if you like, he was letting it be known that, that he felt that if he couldn't have Spanish Netherlands or, or, or something of commensurate significance, that perhaps the deal keeping his wife and any children off the Spanish throne might be null and void. Maybe that contract has, um, has been broken by Philip of Spain. Suffice it to say, long story short, that marriage between Louis of France and the Infanta Maria Teresa, how do you put it, I suppose it stirred more hot spice into a mix that was already pretty hot. And so as the second half of the 17th century played out and drew to a close, tempers were rising all over, as, as they invariably did. It, it, it was in the nature of having a continent run by ambitious rival families, you know, a bunch of crime families. Subsequent to that marriage, Philip of Spain had produced a male heir, Carlos he being Spanish, Carlos II, often in the history books he appears as Charles. He inherited his father's throne and he was, he was physically and mentally challenged. There's all sorts of stories about the extent to which he was challenged and what might have been the cause of it, uh, right up to and including the notion that he was a, a functioning idiot, barely able to walk or talk. It was undeniably true, but hardly exclusive to the Habsburgs, the House of Habsburg, that they were inbred. You know, they had a tendency to marry close to home, uh, which brings with it certain genetic consequences. Judging by portraiture and word on the street, he had an outsized head. He had a facial deformity called prognathism. He had a severely protruding lower jaw which was not exclusive to him in that family, in that Habsburg family. But apparently in the case of Carlos II, it made it difficult for him even to speak. But as I say, it's, it's difficult to tell. We don't have photographs, and a lot of the testimony that has come down through the centuries, you're not quite sure what the motivations were. Some people said that he was well-loved. Some people said that his subjects thought he was great. I think you could probably summarise the situation and say that for whatever reason and to whatever extent, he was weak. He was in poor health. And the truth is, from the time of his birth, he wasn't someone who was expected to live a long life. And certainly not a healthy life. Because he had 
inherited this vast empire. You know, this, this empire we've spoken about before, upon which the sun never set, you know, the American colonies and all of the rest of it. Because he had this disproportionate chunk of territory and thereby power and influence, uh, and he was poorly and expected to die, you know, possibly at any moment, there was a great deal of speculation across Europe about what would actually happen when he died. Who who is going to be next in line? Who's getting all of this territory? Because depending on whose lap it falls into, it could overbalance, you'd unbalance everything. Because all the time that's what's going on in Europe. All these deals, all these marriages, treaties, war, it's all about trying to make sure that nobody gets the absolute upper hand. The power that comes with disproportionate amounts of territory. So all, all these families are vying to make sure, well, let's make sure no one has absolute dominance, like Alexander the Great or a Roman emperor. So that's what's going on all the time. So in preparation for Carlos, Charles's death, there's a lot of paperwork being considered and contemplated. He's got Spain, obviously, sitting on the Iberian Peninsula. There's the Spanish Netherlands. There's all the territories in the Americas. There's territory all around the Med, all around the Mediterranean Sea. There's territory in Italy. There's territory in North Africa. There's territory in the Philippines. I should point out, he's got no children. Word was, amongst the other things that he wasn't, wasn't able to do on account of his genetic inheritance, was that he couldn't father children. He had two wives along the way, but no heir. Also, there were no surviving siblings. He had no brothers and sisters. So... It, all of it was intensifying the speculation about what was going to happen to his empire. Because of the backstory, because of this, you know, centuries of and, and decades of marriages and treaties and all of the rest of it, there was a whole cast of characters who were in line, vaguely, uh, and vying with one another for the inheritance. Amongst those was the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I of Austria, who I mentioned in the first couple of paragraphs of this love letter, uh, and also French Louis, French Louis still in the running. So everyone holds their breath. Everyone's thinking, right, what, what's going to happen? To reiterate, not since Emperor Charles V, made emperor in 1520, had so much been in one man's hands. So there were all sorts of partition treaties signed in advance while Carlos still had breath in his lungs to ensure peace, to try and make sure that in the aftermath of his dying, it didn't all deteriorate into some kind of dreadful conflagration. France, Austria, England, the Netherlands, they're all plotting. All their diplomats, all their Machiavellian types are trying to work out what to do, favouring this candidate, favouring that candidate. Notionally, the objective was to avoid war. And then, to everyone's surprise, Carlos himself nominated little... Joseph Ferdinand, that little boy, as his heir. It was a unilateral decision. It came out of his throne room and it ruffled everyone's feathers, uh, especially Louis and Leopold. It was logical and it was legal, but given all that had gone on before, all the, all the machinations and all the pre preparations that, that Carlos, that Charles II, came down and decided he was just going to heap the whole lot of it in this one direction that, that no one had necessarily seen coming. So it was logical, it was legal, and it was a done deal. Except the little boy died. Before he could inherit any of it, he died. And 
that previously mentioned speculation? Did he die of illness? Did he die of smallpox? Or did someone do away with him? And this is why fingers were pointed at Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor, because you know he stood to gain if he could get potentially if he could get that little boy out of his way. So it threw everything into flux. After the little boy died, there was you know new paperwork starts circulating with a view to finding a new path to peace, and then and then Carlos again signs the whole kit and caboodle over to Philip, Duke of Anjou, who is grandson to French Louis. He makes this other shattering, shocking decision. So, despite all the efforts, despite everyone's hard work to try and avoid conflict, and, more importantly, to stop a single person inheriting the lot, this is what happened. And significantly, Louis agreed that his grandson should succeed Carlos. So, he could have mediated, he could have got involved and moved things in another direction, but for whatever reason, dynastic and all of the rest of it, he signs up to this agreement. And it's chaos. As a consequence of this sign-off, Emperor Leopold, the English and the Dutch Republic all sign up to what becomes known as the Grand Alliance. A trilateral alliance to challenge Louis whose grandson stands to inherit and this manifests itself in the war of the Spanish succession the war of the Spanish succession which is one of the most significant conflicts in European history it led to a dozen years of war before finally Louis was forced to sign the peace of Utrecht of 1713-1714 so he's he's lost out. It's all it's all been fought through and it has all come to this conclusion. Philip, young Philip, was confirmed as King of Spain, so he's not going to inherit the, the totality, but he's King of Spain, but he has to pass on the Netherlands, he has to pass on the Italian territories, he has to pass up on Gibraltar, which is the gateway to the Mediterranean Sea, he has to pass on the island of Menorca. So it's a, it's a huge climb down for France, for the House of Bourbon. Really, the die was cast in terms of the War of the Spanish Succession not long after everything kicked off. In 1704, in a place in Germany called Blenheim, there was one of the most significant battles in European history. John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, on behalf of the British, and Prince Eugene of Savoy came together to secure one of the most significant victories in history. By that victory, which really, although the war rumbled on for the best part of another decade, Louis was hobbled from the beginning. And Louis knew and then had it proved to him that he was never going to assert and he's never going to achieve or assert the kind of dominance of an Alexander the Great. So the storm clouds had, had come, there had been a downpour, but when, it's, when it settled out, when that broke and that settled out, Europe was was changed and, and settled and a destiny was set because of the victors Britain, the British, gained most in the aftermath of the War of the Spanish Succession Britain emerged as a naval power arguably the naval power uh, with control over Gibraltar 
which was that gateway between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic of huge significance. They also had control of Menorca, and they also, from a financial point of view, had the trading rights to the to Spanish America. So that whole new world opened up to Britain and the British in the aftermath of that war of the Spanish succession. French Louis gained nothing but debt. All he achieved was to break the bank of France. And he knew it. And he knew it. On his deathbed, he died just a year after signing the Peace of Utrecht. And his last words, or among his last words, were the confession, I have loved war too well. It was his own fault and he knew it. He had followed a path that led to a conflagration. And the consequences of that conflagration were to end his ambitions and to change the face of Europe forever. If Louis had managed to get his grandchild to have control of Spain and also of France and all the other territories, that would have been a massive power block. That would always have provoked war because the people left on the outside of that vast territory would not have been able to contemplate allowing that status quo to crystallise and become permanent. No one wants a dog that big in the fight. It was inevitably going to provoke war, which it did. You know, no sooner was no sooner had that come to pass than the Grand Alliance did what was inevitable. Anyone, whatever way the whatever way the cards had fallen, if anyone had ended up in that all dominant position, everybody else would have moved heaven and earth to try and avert that situation, to try and get around that situation. That's what happened. There was an inevitability about it, and as things turned out. You know, because of the skill of people like John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, Eugene of Savoy, that battle at Blenheim, the Grand Alliance achieved an upper hand at that point. Before Louis was able to take full advantage of, of that territorial dominance, they struck hard and fast and first and challenged that and prevented that becoming the status quo, prevented that crystallising properly. It had to happen. It had to happen. It was always going to happen. Uh, and on his deathbed, you know, Louis acknowledged that the, the consequences of it were, were dire for France. And it was because he had he'd let his ambition and his greed get away with him. Uh, and, you know, I have loved war too well. So he did. And so it undid him. In 1712, Thomas Newcomen invents the steam engine and the tentacles of the Industrial Revolution reach out around the world, changing it forever. But this one man isn't alone. His genius stands on the shoulders of giants, part of a long and winding road of invention and innovation. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I would love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. 
For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Trans World. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Financed by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Squared Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.